Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yepeth, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Well, welcome, James. I am thrilled to have James Breakwell on the podcast today. James is the author of Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse, uh, and our upcoming Bare Minimum Parenting, actually out this month, which we're very excited about. And, you know, I don't do a lot of comedy books or humor books um, just because it's so hard to find things that are genuinely funny. Uh, But James is hysterical. And so uh, he's done a fantastic job, uh, both in terms of building up his online platform in uh, in humor and also in terms of his, his fantastic books. So anyway, welcome, James. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So just to back up, how did you get into the business of humor? I started a long time ago. I, I the first my first platform was just emailing random people who didn't ask to hear from me in, uh, in <laughs> high school. I had, I had some extra time at the end of a computer literacy class, so I did the logical thing most guys do, and I started writing a fake book of the Bible, and I emailed it to a couple people. They were sitting a few rows ahead of me, and I watched them open it, and I watched them laugh. And like <laughs> a light bulb went on in my head. You know, I'm not a I'm not the class clown. I'm not a stand up comedian, but I could I could write things and do this. So I started emailing more and more people. Then I I went to college. And I, uh, I wrote for the school paper there, kind of took over a column and just wrote big humor columns there. Then from there, I moved into blogging, uh, briefly tried the newspaper world, and then tried blogging for a lot longer and eventually jumped to social media. So it's kind of been just trying out different platforms to get those jokes across. Now, were you getting some traction in blogging or was social media really the breakthrough for you? No traction in blogging whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I, I, I wasn't in it quite at the golden age, but I was in it at the tail end when some people were still going viral. And I would watch people just explode and wonder, why isn't this happening to me? Uh, looking back, I understand it a little better. But yeah, my first book uh, with you guys was uh, 40,000 words. Well, that blog was 300,000 words. Wow. Long. Every word of it was comedy articles. I look back through it. Some of it was pretty good. Some of it wasn't. But by the end, my style was pretty much what it is now. And I couldn't get people to read that thing for free. (laughs) And my whole goal with that was uh, when I got out of the newspaper business, originally I thought I was going to be the next Dave Barry. I'd work my way up and get a column and then get book deals. And when I realized that wasn't going to work, I thought, well, I'm going to build up an internet audience and then publishers are going to come to me. But that ended up being a lot easier said than done. So I worked on that blog forever. And then finally, I jumped over to social media to promote that blog. And when I got on Twitter, uh, it turned out that it was just uniquely well suited for developing jokes. And I, I kind of hit my niche there and I, I figured out what people wanted from me. I figured out how to write better, more succinct jokes. And then that's how I eventually went viral. And then from there, I circled back uh, to the longer comedy. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, Twitter just seems to be a great fit for your your style of sort of punchy comedy. Now, are there other platforms you're also focusing on? I am everywhere. <laughs> when we first talked years ago, I think I was just on Twitter, but I've I've expanded outward. You've got you've really got to to be broad because platforms can collapse without any notice. Uh, Vine did and took a lot of people who were making a full time living off Vine. Snapchat seems to be on its way out. So now I'm on Twitter, Facebook. 
Instagram, uh, and I'm pushing YouTube hard. I, you know, I have a million followers on Twitter. Uh, if I had a million followers on YouTube, I would be rich. I wouldn't even have to right. write books. It, it's just a totally different platform. I've got my kids, you know, I, I tell them I have a million followers on Twitter and that means nothing to me, but one day, or to, nothing to them, but one day one of their YouTube heroes is reading tweets and he read some of my tweets. And they said, dad, dad, you're on the internet. It's like, I live on the internet. That's where <laughs> I am. But it doesn't mean anything to them till that they're until it's on YouTube. So I'm pushing YouTube hard now as well. Uh, as well as the mailing list. I've got it where I send out a comedy article once a week. And I've, I've moved into podcasts as well. I've got two of those, uh, Wrong and Wronger, where we debate pointless topics, and it's pretty funny. And then uh, 10 Minutes to Save Your Marriage, where I team up with a psychologist and we try to solve your relationship issues in 10 minutes or less. Oh, I love that. So uh, how would people find those? Uh, you can find 10 Minutes to Save Your Marriage and Wrong and Wronger on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Uh, Spotify, I think, has Wrong and Wronger. All, all the typical channels, they're there. We, <laughs> I'm not going to claim we're a big deal in the podcasting world. Every time you jump from one platform to another, you have to convince people all over to believe in you. But I, I think we put out a good product and we have fun, which is the important part. Uh, then as far as uh, Twitter, I'm at Exploding Unicorn without the E. On uh, Instagram, I believe I'm James underscore Breakwell. And on Facebook, you can find me with, uh, you know, James Breakwell, Exploding Unicorn. And on uh, YouTube, I'm James Breakwell. Basically, if you go anywhere and, and Google James Breakwell, I'll probably pop up. That's right. Now, so talk to me about how you built that platform on Twitter over time. How did that come about? When I got into this, I wasn't really a parenting blogger. I was, uh, I started writing jokes long before I had kids, long before I was married. Uh, but Twitter gave me two things I didn't have before when I was blogging. Because when you blog, you know, I'd spend five or six hours in a blog post, write a thousand or two thousand words, and you throw it out. And uh, you get two comments back, ha ha, that's funny. And this is stupid, delete your blog. It's really not <laughs> <Right>. helpful <laughs> to develop as a writer. Uh, but Twitter gave me focus and it gave me feedback. So the way Twitter works is if you tell a joke and it's good, people retweet it and it spreads. And if you tell it and people don't like it, they don't retweet it. So you get to succeed on a large scale and fail on a small scale. And you can do that over and over again. So that's how I developed the back and forth conversation style on there. I didn't invent that by any means. I mean, joke formats have been around forever, but that's how I, where I found out I had the most success. And that's where I found out people wanted to hear about jokes about my kids. And with my jokes, you know, some of them are real and some of them are exaggerated and some are made up, but they all have that kernel of truth that makes you relate to them and say, yes, my kids do that, or I can totally see my kids do that. And I figured out how to walk that line, how to get the parts of life that people actually care about and kind of edit out the whining and the crying, or at least enough that people <laughs> want to read the tweets. And, and I hit that sweet spot and I did that for years. And then uh, I built up a following gradually to 200,000 people. And then uh, BuzzFeed ran an article and that was, that was the spark I needed. And then it just, it went viral from there. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It sounds like Twitter has just been a great learning platform where you can constantly try things, try things, figure out what works and then run with and do more of what's working. Yes, I would like to say that Twitter was this amazing platform that just discovered me and I was already great. But really, when I look back at my old tweets, they're terrible. I just <laughs> right. didn't know what I was doing. So I really have become a better writer. So I think early on when I wasn't gaining followers, there was a reason for it. But I was willing to learn. And I think if you're going to advance in anything, you've got to be willing to to learn, especially in uh, in comedy writing. Now, there are people out there who are you know doing stand-up comedy, going out, you know, five-minute set here, five-minute set there. And that's just a brutal way to develop material, whereas you can sit in the, you know, the 
comfort of your own home, kind of hide behind your screen, and you can throw out a lot of jokes really fast and get wide-ranging feedback. You know, you're not getting it from 10 people in a mostly empty room. You can get it from thousands of people at a time. And that feedback is scalable. That feedback is just as useful if you have 100 followers as if you have a million followers. You figure out what line is a good joke for you, what line is a bad joke, and you can build from there. I mean, it really works for everybody. Now, were you thinking from the beginning that I'm going to build my platform and then try to monetize it with books or did that just sort of evolve? Yes. the uh, I always wanted to get to the point where I would write books. I, I, I had a bunch of different schemes over the years for how that was going to happen. And the one that finally worked was social media. Uh, but that was always kind of the end goal, the pie in the sky. And then at the end, there will be a book. Like in between, I didn't know all the steps. One of the steps might have been a miracle happen. That was, <laughs> right. that, that, was, that was the idea. So yeah, I, I always wanted to, uh, to get to that point. I think a lot of other people want to get there too. And, and originally I was looking at, uh, you know, how to get a book deal and you have to write a query letter and send it out to agents and all of that. But looking back now, it turns out the comedy writing I do, which is technically nonfiction, even when it's a zombie book, uh, for those kind of books, publishers will not publish them if you don't already have a platform. They'll, they'll buy fiction from you if you're unknown, if you don't have any readers, but they uh, typically won't buy nonfiction from you. So it turns out the way that I stumbled into this uh, was the only way that I was going to get anybody to take me seriously anyway. Right. I think that's right. Unless you have some kind of unique expertise, which you know, in a way is its own form of platform. You know, you just won a Nobel Prize and whatever. Yeah. It's having a some kind of platform is very important for nonfiction. Now in fiction, of course, it's so hard to get published in any case, but mm-hmm. but you're but you're right. You can be an unknown and, and write something that the right agent feels is brilliant and you know get published and get a huge deal as a first time author. But those are it's like sweepstakes. You know, it's it's rare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now tell me about how you Got a, got an agent. How did that happen? So I, I did the grind forever, got, uh, and again, everybody, when I tell this story, they're like, it happens so fast, but that's like looking at the last hundred meters of a marathon and be like, well, that was a short race. I mean, you just <laughs> right. see the end and, and you don't take into account everything that happened before. Uh, but yeah, so I, I've been writing for years and I apologize if you hear my pig in the background, she's waking up. <laughs> <and whining. laughs> this is my life. I don't know how much the sound dampening is going to stop it. So I I got up to 200,000 followers and then BuzzFeed ran this article and I had BuzzFeed had run articles about me before, not just about me. They run roundup of tweets. And after a while, their editors figure out who writes jokes every day and they just go back to the same sources. So when they contacted me and said they wanted to interview me, I, I thought nothing of it. Well, then the article came out and I checked the the Saturday morning it came out. They didn't even tell me when it was going to run. And Saturday's a really low traffic day. And I looked and I gained like 3,000 followers since that morning. I thought, well, that's weird. I guess that article gave me a boost. By noon, I had gained 10,000. By that night, I'd gained 40,000. By the end of the weekend, I'd gained 100,000 followers. By Monday morning, newspapers were contacting me from around the world. I was getting emails from like the Daily Mail and stuff like that. I was getting, and I was was at work, mind you, in my cubicle trying to answer these through my phone. I ended up with just kind of a rolling press release. I just copied and pasted my answers from the last newspaper to the next newspaper and then answered any new questions they had. And out of that, Mark Gottlieb with Trident Media Group contacted me and asked if I wanted him to represent me. And I looked into it and it was a great agent and a great agency. So I said, yes. And and now looking back, I realize how lucky I am because they're a pretty big player out there. But after that, four more agents ended up getting in touch with me and I was in a position, I, I turned them all down. And it sounds like a real power move, but really, I just said yes to the literally the first person who contacted (laughs) me. (laughs) But it was it was neat. It was kind of the fruition of everything where in the end, the book world did kind of come to me. Now, once we were actually submitting books, the the balance of power shifted again in favor of the publishers. But for for a brief while there, I was I was in charge calling the shots. And that was pretty cool. 
it's interesting because you know we see it with our books all the time where you where there'll be some media and it'll explode a book or it won't explode a book and i think the difference is what do people find when they see the material so you know in your case i think the buzzfeed exploded you but it was because when people went to your Twitter feed, they loved it and they started sharing stuff. So it was a catalyst, but what made it work was the quality of the material. And I've used this analogy before in speeches. It's kind of like a forest fire. For a forest fire to take off, you need a spark, but you also need a lot of material there on the forest floor to make it take off. And that's what I had. Um, you'll see all the time now that they've changed the Twitter algorithm. Somebody will write one relatable tweet and they'll get half a million likes. It's incredible. And you'll go and you'll look at their account and they'll still have 500 followers. Nobody follows them because they have that one incredible relatable tweet and you go to their account and there's nothing else like that. It's just them tweeting about work or school or food. Uh, but with my account, by the time I exploded, I had 15,000 jokes, just like the 20 that BuzzFeed had put in their article. And they put in clickable links. If you clicked on that, you came and found 15,000 more right. of what I had put out. And these were all things that I had tested, you know, just rigorously looking at what works and what doesn't. So I, you know, by the end, by the time I exploded, I knew it was good material. And it was kind of an interesting process learning that because you think, oh, I've got good material. Now I'm going to go viral. That's really not how it, it works. Um, the first time I went viral, it was when people started stealing my jokes, giant Instagram accounts would take screenshots and cut off my name. And I was like, okay, I know this material is good. Oh, wow. So it goes, it goes viral for other people. Right. So I kept, I kept writing, but I wasn't making any money off it. Other people were making money off of me. And then I created an alternate Twitter account, very low Luke right around the time that The Force Awakens came out and that went viral. I it was I pretended to be a lonely Jedi. I remember you know, that. Kind of going crazy. Yeah. And he uh, and that account got 300,000 followers in a couple of weeks. And I thought, well, this is it. I've made it. But, you know, you really can't monetize pretending to be a Jedi like it doesn't work. <laughs> right. So nobody's offered me a book deal for that. And that was that was uh, just a few months before I went viral with James Breakwell. So there for, I was really exploding all over the Internet, but it wasn't under my own name. And it wasn't until it happened under my own name name in my face that I was able to actually advance my career. So actually, since then, I've kind of scaled back. I used to have a bunch of parody accounts, uh, but there's really there's really no money in it. If you want to build a brand, if you want to get to books, if you want to get to ad deals or anything, you've really got to do it under your own face or it won't, it won't do you any good. Now, in, in transitioning to YouTube and video, what have you learned so far about making that happen? I mentioned this briefly earlier, but every time you have to reconvince people, you're, you're worth it. I mean, I have people who say, yeah, I read every single one of your tweets. And they're like, oh, great. Well, listen to my podcast or watch my videos. Like, eh, I don't know about that. I'll give you 10 seconds for a tweet. I don't know if I'll give you five <laughs> right. minutes for a video or 15 minutes for a podcast or four hours for a book. And that's and that's really what my business model has become. You hook people with the 10 seconds of comedy, and then I try to get them to the newsletter where they'll read 1,000 or 2,000 words at a time. And then maybe they'll watch a video. Maybe they'll read a book. That's kind of how it works. And in this goal and moving towards this, I, I ended up uh, with kind of with a career I didn't expect as a social media influencer. I never at any stage of this thought, well, at some point I'll get so many followers that people will will pay me to advertise products. But that's that's where I've ended up with there's there's a there's some PR agencies that kind of contact me over and over again because I'm I'm pretty family friendly and easy to work with. And, you know, it's not like I'm shilling poison or anything. <laughs> it's like <laughs> diapers and things I actually use, you know, pizza and stuff like that. 
So it's worked really well. And I, I see out there authors who who try to go full time doing that. And I think right now, unless you're a big name, I think for the large middle class of writers who write books that, you know, they might earn out and they might not, but you're not getting million dollar deals. I think it's really hard for them to earn a living getting paid once or twice a year. Whereas now that I've gotten to books, I don't just have books. I have this entire influencer network set up with advertising and all these other revenue streams. And I think originally I thought, well, someday I'll write books and that'll all fall away. But now as I look at it, I think more and more authors are doing a, a hybrid style of setup where they make money off books and a podcast or or books and social media or something else. They're two things that dovetail together very well, but they are two distinct revenue streams. Yeah, but there is like a feedback loop between them. When people read your book, you know, they feel more invested in you and then they follow you more on social media. And, and you know, it kind of is a positive feedback loop that can happen if things go right. Exactly. Yeah. What one part definitely helps the other. And I've been very lucky. I I know some people out there, they 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 get kind of a negative interactions with fans. I see I see big names out there all the time just getting into battles with them. And I I really haven't done that. I've, I, I do my best to ignore the negativity when it pops up, but for the most part, my followers are pretty good. They're largely young parents and they don't they just don't have time for that kind of stuff. They don't have <laughs> right. a lot of trolls. So they've been pretty supportive and they've helped me as I move from one platform to another. So yeah, if I could if I can make it on YouTube, I that would be great. But I, but in the meantime, just with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of those things, it's it's proved to be pretty stable. Yeah, I think that's smart in terms of not engaging. I do wonder who has the time to argue with people they never heard of on the Internet, but apparently a lot of people do. And, you know, I get it because like as much as I want to ignore it, like when I do read comments, there are always certain comments that hit you just right that you can't brush it off and you brood over it all day. But I finally gotten to the point where I've realized if I argue about this, it's not going to make it better. I'm not going to change their mind. Nobody changes their mind on the Internet. (laughs) And in real life. It's unrealistic to think everybody you walk past on the street is going to like you. They just never tell you. So I just have to remind myself that when somebody doesn't like me on the Internet, it's no different than the way they don't like me in real life. And if I respond to them, I'm just giving them a platform and it ends up looking bad for both of us. Nobody comes out of an Internet fight looking good, even if you're right. Yeah, no, no question. So talk to me about, you know, your first book was Only Dead on the Inside. Talk to me about your writing process. How did you develop the book? I guess I had an advantage over other writers in that I didn't have anything to say. And I think that's my greatest <laughs> asset. I've heard a lot of people are like, well, my first book is what I thought about for years. And then they make it and they don't have a second book. I didn't even have a first book. I mean, what people really wanted me to write was stuff my dad says. This is a different word than stuff. But they, they wanted me to just write a book of tweets with some parenting stories thrown in. And I didn't want to do that for a whole bunch of different reasons. I didn't want to do it because, you know, my tweets are a mix of fact and fiction. And on the Internet, that's fine. But maybe that's not so fine in a book. But also because I wanted the whole time, I didn't want to spend my life writing 140 characters, which was the limit at the time. I wanted I wanted to convince people they could trust me to write a real book. So I, I thought of the zombie concept as kind of bridging that gap. And when I, when I came up with it, it's not like I had all these chapters thrown in there. It was just a core idea of, you know, being a parent now isn't that different than being a parent in the in the zombie apocalypse. Our lives are already kind of a disaster and you're already taking, you know, these little, taking care of these little monsters. There'd just be these big monsters outside too. So I went from there and it was a very compartmentalized book because, well, here's, or here, here's you driving to work today. How would the situation be if you're dropping your kids off at daycare and they're zombies? <laughs> right. Or here's you making dinner. How's that different if there are zombies? It was, it was very easy to write. So I wrote the chapters out of order and it was, it was just fun to write. It was quick to write. 
great. Uh, and I'll tell you, I actually, I, my tools of writing changed in there as well. I, the first draft going through there, it was very traditional. I did it all on a PC or a laptop, but I ended up a situation I had to fly out to LA for an ad deal. And uh, coming back, the laptop was just too huge and cumbersome to open up on the, with the way my plane was. Cause of course I was flying like super economy or whatever. So I started editing on my phone and I had a breakthrough because I, I do Google docs for everything and I could do it on my phone almost faster than I could do it on the PC. On a PC, you get that big blank screen and it's real easy to jump down the page if you get stuck. But on your phone, the screen's small enough that you got to fix where you are one line at a time and go. And it ended up, it ended up just regulating me at the perfect speed. So I, I did a lot of the finishing work for that book on my phone. That's really interesting. Yeah. I got to the second book, Bare Minimum Parenting. I wrote that, almost that entire book on my phone, just swiping at a time because it, it slows you down enough. If I type, I type so fast that I'll get to the end of a sentence and I don't know what to put and I'll go browse the internet for 20 minutes. But with swiping, it's just about the right speed where you get to the end of the next one sentence and you have room for the next one. And here's the crazy part. So there's another book beyond that one. I don't know if we've announced it yet or not that I'm writing with you guys. This next book, I wrote an entire book on my phone again, but this time I did voice to text. Uh, and that was a little oh, scary. Wow. I found the function in Google uh, in, the, in the Google Docs. I was like, I wonder how well this works. And the first day I tried it, I wrote 10,000 words. It was incredible. Now, after that, I got this whole first draft done and I, I got the book deal and all that. And then I went back. I was like, boy, I hope that actually worked. I haven't gone back over this. I hope it's not hard garbage. And it was garbage, but it wasn't <laughs> any more garbage than any other first draft right, I've done. Exactly. I mean, all first drafts are garbage. And so I've gone through and edited. I'm like, wow, I'm actually, you know, right where I need to be, but I got there a lot quicker. So my, uh, it sounds incredibly unprofessional, but yeah, I write books on my phone and it's working really well. Actually, you know, I've heard about, there's a famous science fiction writer. I think his name is Kevin Anderson. And I remember reading about his process and he's a big hiker. And he would go hiking for miles and for hours and hours just talking through his books. And he would record it. It wasn't it was before the days of the Google Translate. He would just have a secretary type it up. And that's how he'd have his first draft while he was hiking. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I actually, when, I, when I'm going back through this draft now, I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember I was walking in the woods here doing that, or I was pacing my living room. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. You remember where you were. And I actually, I do a lot of the writing uh, in the car. Uh, the nice thing about uh, being on your phone is you're never really away from your workspace. If you get stuck in line at the grocery store, or you're in the lobby at the doctor's office, you can just pick it up and write. But when we went on family vacation, it's like, oh no, we got a three or four or five hour drive. Well, my wife graciously volunteered to drive and I can just work on the book on my phone. Now, when we, I will say, say that when I'm in the car with her, I typically don't use voice to text because we've got a movie playing overhead and I'm just going to end up with all the lyrics for Frozen <laughs> in the book. I use swiping then. Now, I have to mention that you're also an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in quotes. <laughs> so only did on the inside. For those of you who haven't seen it, and I definitely recommend that you get this book. It is full color and it's filled with color illustrations that are really hysterical. Um, including graphs and charts that are all sort of very comedic. And, and I love that aspect of your style. Uh, talk about that a little bit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you're going to put any professional artists out of business, but <laughs> go ahead. Well, you know what? If you're bad in the same way, every time it becomes a style. And that's what yes. I did. I, <laughs> I created those stick figures that were bad the same way every time. And so it looks like it's intentional rather than being like the full extent of my abilities. So I started that webcomic years ago and the main characters were modeled after the stick figures on bathroom doors. I was like, you look at those stick figures, you know, it's a guy and a girl. I'll have that be me and my wife. We'll make some smaller stick figures for my kids. This will work. Originally, they 
they didn't even have other colors. They were just all monochromatic. Uh, and I started that. My wife said, don't you do this. You don't have time for it. And she was right. She was absolutely right. <laughs> Every time I started something else, I don't have time for it. But I started doing those web comics. And um, the whole idea was that a blog post, this is back when I thought blogging was going to make money. A blog post took five hours. I thought, what if I make a stick figure comic that takes 10 seconds, but it, you still gets you to come to the page. It's the same amount of advertising revenue. And it worked. And so I started making one of those every day. And then I moved on. I started making a web comic out of my kids' drawings. And I started making one. Uh, I had a real artist come in and I tried that briefly. Well, not briefly. I'm still doing it, but I moved the pieces around. And it, it's been it's been interesting because I guess now I kind of am a comic artist. I mean, I have my main comic has 1,600 comics on the internet. Uh, my other ones are both over a thousand and now I've got them published in one book and I'm coming out with another book. And it's just, you don't need a lot of artistic detail to get the message across. So it lets me tell, it lets me go beyond tweets. Um, it's, you know, you can be a little bit more slapstick, a little bit more surrealist than you can if you just write it in text in a tweet. Love that about it. The silence is hit a little harder when you have a blank panel. It's really easy to, even with my stick figures, you say, oh, that's a flamethrower. That's a horse. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to be that great at it. If my, if my kids can come up and tell what it is, it's good enough. That's kind of my, that's kind of my line. And uh, it actually, it turns out it's a good thing I didn't abandon it, even though, you know, for years I didn't make any money off of it. Now I started putting those on Instagram and for a long time, my Instagram account wasn't growing and now I'm putting those on Instagram and suddenly my Instagram account is exploding again. Uh, and I think long-term, actually, it's going to be good uh, for my strategy because people always ask, well, what are you going to do when your kids grow up? Well, in that webcomic, my kids are always going to be the same age. So I can always tell the kind of jokes I am now. But rather than coming from my mouth in a tweet, it'll just be with these stick figure comics and I can keep going that way. Yeah, no, no question. And, and really, these are the level of quality is exactly right for what you're doing. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the early Dilberts where, you know, it was just, you know, it was just enough to, to get the joke and um, and it really worked. There's a lot of people out there who are amazing at drawing and their comics just aren't that funny. And I think maybe it's more important to come up with the joke first and the art second than the, rather than the other way around. And there are certainly people, comic fans out there who will, who will disagree with me, but I'm definitely in the joke first camp. So all right, let's talk about bare minimum parenting. Now, see, only dead on the inside, which is a parent's guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse. That book, of course, there's no message there because until until the <laughs> zombies come, there's really nothing to be learned. But the minimum parenting is, you know, it's a hysterical book, but it seems like you're also delivering a serious message. Is that true or am I reading too much into it? It is true, but it kind of happened by accident. I was on somebody's podcast the other day and they called it slyly revolutionary. <laughs> and I thought that's the best compliment ever. But yeah, I set out to write a book of jokes and just kind of being about being a funny laid back parent. And I kind of accidentally ended up proving a point. And it's not a point that's built on facts and figures. It's not built on expert testimony or studies or all of that, because I think all of those things, they don't really line up with reality. Every time you see a new study coming out, all it tells you is you're doing everything wrong. Kids are too expensive. You're not doing enough for them. You need to spend more time. But then if you look at reality, if you look at what we turn out as, as adults, I mean, there are these decisions that we agonize over when we're raising our kids. Should we stay home with our kids or should we send them to daycare? Should we breastfeed or bottle feed? Are we going to get the right stroll? Are we going to get into the right daycare? But if you meet somebody in their 40s, you don't know what daycare <laughs> right. they went to. You don't know if they were breastfed or bottle fed. It just all averages out. And I really don't think there's any correlation along there that you can prove. There's too many other factors that come into play to trace anything back to those early parenthood decisions. So if we're all going to be average, if we're all going to be mediocre anyway, rather than writing a parenting book about how we can overachieve, I wanted to write a parenting book about how we can do as little as possible and still achieve that mediocre 
mediocre status. But as I went through this, as I reasoned through this line by line, joke by joke, I kind of surprised myself. I thought, you know what? I think kids are better off if you take this bare minimum approach than if you're an overachiever. I think overachieving as a parent actually hurts kids, whereas being lazy and laid back might actually be better for them. So I don't think you're hurting kids at all by doing this. I think you're actually helping them out. You know, there's actually a new book that just came out by Jonathan Haidt. I'm a fan of his. He's a great social scientist. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And you've probably heard about this, like in colleges, there's, you know, all this drive for safe spaces and such, you know, concerns about safety. But at the same time, you know, anxiety and depression are way up among college kids. And he traces it back to, you know, sometime in the mid 90s, we decided kids should never be on their own. Parents should always resolve every issue or adult of some sort. And these kids have never really been exposed to, you know, sort of solving their own problems. And now there's a, it just created a huge amount of anxiety. So there's actually a whole book that just came out that supports your thesis. There are probably just as many that, that go against it. But I, think the, <laughs> the, I think the bottom line is that every generation is always the worst generation right, of the generation right. that came before it. I mean, you figure human beings have been around, depending on which scientists you talk to, Homo sapiens, so maybe a million to 200,000 years, somewhere in that. And in that time, every generation, somehow, we raise our kids to have kids of their own, and we just keep going. And if we could make it through with no technology, when we just had spears, you know, fighting off saber-toothed tigers, surely now, with all the safety features we have in place, Place, our lives should be easier rather than harder. I think that all the stress we put in there worrying about whether we're doing too much or too little, I think it's all self-inflicted. So I'd say the core core thesis of my book is whichever way you're parenting, you just need to worry less about it and accept that your kids are going to turn out how they turn out no matter what you're putting into it. That's always been my feeling as well. That, you know, and when you have kids, you realize how much of that personality is just there. You know, you had nothing to do with yeah. it. It's just there. <laughs> I have one sibling, so I'm, I'm the oldest of seven kids. And the next brother down, when I was, you know, much younger, he'd be the one I picked on the most. And he grew up, he was a lot, he looks like me, but he's a lot more introverted, love computers and stuff more than that. And I thought, oh no, I ruined this kid. This is all my fault. But then when kid number seven came around, he was just like kid number two. But by kid number seven, I wasn't even in the house. And I thought, there's my control group. This isn't my fault. <laughs> right. This is genetics. That kid just turned out how he turned out. And I think parents go through that, through a lot of that too. I think we we look at our kids' personalities and say, oh my gosh, I did this. And, and maybe you did in terms of genetics or environment, but I don't think it's going to be in terms of any one parenting decision you make. I mean, half the parenting decisions you make, your kids isn't even going to remember. Uh, so a big big point of my book is if your kid isn't going to remember it anyway, just portray their childhood as best they can, as best you can, lie about it, and they're going to think they had a great childhood, even if they didn't. You, you are the record keeper. Right. And we could definitely find many examples of kids that Grew up in alcoholic haze and still achieved great things. They're in the news all the time. If you're a truly horrible parent, which again, this bare minimum book is not about being a horrible parent at all. It's not, it's not about those things. But, it, but in those cases where you are a horrible parent, you don't really stop the kid either. You just become part of their heroic backstory. Look at what they overcame. Right, you know, right. you get that up on you. Where, whereas if you come from a good home, it's like, that guy came from a good home. What's his excuse? So you can, you can find the positives in anything. Right. And it's, you know, obviously it's definitely be impossible to be so, such a horrible parent that you hurt your kid. But your ability to make them into a genius seems questionable, doesn't it? Yes, I think the idea that you can push them to great, greater heights to be this, you know, world-changing genius, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. And if you look at it, look at the people who truly are geniuses. And how many of those people 
are actually happy? How many of their lives would you actually want? You know, you the, the, you get constant biographies coming out about this great man or that. You know, Steve Jobs had all these biographies come out. Would you really want your kid to grow up to be Steve Jobs, even with all that wealth? Is that the person you'd want to sit down with at Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> right. just, there's a lot of these so-called geniuses who are just miserable human beings and not very fun to be around and who, quite frankly, don't lead very happy lives. So I think if your kid does turn out to be a world-changing genius, great, but don't make them miserable trying to turn them into that because even the end destination isn't necessarily all that great. Now, isn't one of the difficulties the social pressure that parents do you have to deal with? Yes. And, you know, I deal with that every day on the Internet. And I talk about that in the book, about how important it is to ignore it, because it it still hits me, too. You know, somebody will comment just right and it, it, may, it sticks with you and upsets you. But you have to learn to deal with it in your own ways. And I've learned to deal with it just that if I don't read the comment, it doesn't hurt me. That's that's my line. If I read it, it's going to bother me no matter what. So if I post something and I know it's going to irritate people, that's when I just don't read it. Uh, in the in the parenting book, I think I have a line. You know, there's a reason it's called parental peer pressure, not parental opinions that are easy to ignore. I mean, there is always going to be hard uh, to step away. But if you look at it objectively, like, why do we even care about the opinions of these people? Like, the only thing we have in common with them is that we both reproduce. That's that's it. It's not <laughs> like you share all these other interests. It's not like you're going to be lifelong friends. It's just somebody off in their unsolicited opinion. And who's to say their way is right? I mean, again, we all parent in different ways. Our kids all turn out more or less the same. I don't think I don't think any way is more right than the other. There are no perfect children. And if there are no perfect children, there are no perfect parents. So we need to all give it a rest. Now, I have to ask this question. Is it possible that you're bare minimum, minimum parenting while your wife is maximum parenting <laughs> to make up for it? <laughs> I think we're both on the oh, same good. page about that. I think our, our parents come from that too. I, in both cases, our parents just never really pushed us. We we did what we did, but we never had that pressure coming down. And and my wife and I, we both work full time. And now I'm kind of transitioning into all the writing. So for a while, I've been working two jobs. Uh, but yeah, we've never been the type to helicopter in and do all of these things. We keep our kids alive. We keep them well fed. But we, again, we kind of depend on them to entertain themselves and, and, and be a little independent. But yeah, that would that would be a very different book. About, <laughs> right. yeah, you, you want parent, take it easy. If one parent do everything. So definitely don't do that. Make sure both parents are on the same page before you engage. That's in good. This. Now, how many kids do you have? We have four kids, eight, six, four, and two. And I have two. So with four kids, I imagine maximum parenting is really not on the cards in any scenario. That's a lot to, that's a lot to deal with. <laughs> Yeah, there are people out there who already have their four-year-old in soccer and in all these activities and tumbling and all that. I think, what what is the point? I mean, is your, is your kid going to be the next World Cup player? And I think kids at that age, they enjoy things to a certain extent. I think they might enjoy half an hour of soccer every once in a while. Do they really need to go to two games a week? It just, but it, it ramps up out of control so quickly. And I know when I went to school, I did every extracurricular under, activity under the sun to stuff my resume. And if I could go back in time, that's one thing I would change. I mean, so much of that stuff that we think is important just doesn't matter. And I would just, I would, I would skip, I think the majority of that, except for the stuff I actually enjoyed. And I'm going to try to really do that with my kids. It's like, are you doing this because you want to do it or just because your friends signed up or because you think it's going to help you in some other, you know, Machiavellian way? Uh, Cause I don't, you know, with four kids, I don't want to be driving them to 16 practices a night. We got to, we got to draw the line. I think I'm going to draw it early. If they, it's a lot easier to quit an activity if you never start it in the first place. So I think we're going to be real selective about what we get them enrolled in. I'm an earlier generation. I grew up in the in my teenage years were in the 70s. We left the house in the morning to go walk to school and then walked back and then spent, you know, the afternoon running around the woods. And, and you know, we just had to be home for dinner. So there was like no scheduling <laughs> of anything. I guess now my parents would have gone to jail 
And that's the thing. Everybody grew up playing. It was amazing. I, I kind of had a mix of that. I remember I would sometimes in the summer, before I was old enough to, to drive, but I was old enough to bike around, I would bike all around my hometown. I'd go miles away, not necessarily telling anybody where they where I was. And it's totally different today. But I think statistically, the world is actually safer than it used to be. It's just that in all those bad cases, when there's a child abduction, everybody in the state hears about it with an Amber Alert, which is good because everybody can help look. But at the same time, when there's a tragic murder, everybody hears about it. And while statistically, you're no, you know, more on safe than before, suddenly everybody keeps a close eye on their kids. I think I think we're just much more aware of the rare dangers there are. So we're probably never going to go back to that free range parenting lifestyle, which is a shame because I think it probably did kids a lot of good. And I think it was certainly much better for parental sanity. I think this is probably the first time in history where you're expected to keep your kids indoors with you all day under your supervision. I think that's probably contributed to quite a few nervous breakdowns. (laughs) <laughs> right. And uh, no, and you're right. The statistics show that it's actually considerably safer than it was in the 70s and the 80s today. Um, Except, so yeah. there's, yeah. But not only does it contribute to the parents' breakdowns, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, it, it's not good for the kids to constantly be the first time they're not totally supervised is when they're 18 in college. Yeah, there are. I think there are kids out there just legitimately have no idea what to do with free time. I have a friend who their kid is a junior high and they were going to two or three hours of soccer practice a night in junior high. And the crazy part was in this this person inspired an entire chapter in my book about sports. because I looked at that experience. And I looked back <laughs> to my own life and thought, what are we doing with sports? What a waste of time. But she was actually injured. And she still had to go there and sit there for two hours a night. I thought, that is insane. There is no other area of life where you have this authoritarian regime where you're going to show up no matter what. If you get hurt on the job, you go home with workers' comp. If you you get hurt on the battlefield, they send you back behind the lines. You don't stay up (laughs) front and clap for the other soldiers. (laughs) But here and only here do we say the only thing that matters is the team. And they schedule practices without consulting you. They schedule games without consulting you. You don't get vacation days. You don't get personal days. If you show up, you lose your spot. You lose the privilege of showing up every day. I mean, it's just, it's a totally warped thing. And we, th- we, we think we're preparing them for real life. But I don't know what we're preparing them for because there's no other situation in your adult life that's going to be like that where somebody else has such total unquestioned control over you. I'm a big fan of stepping out of sports or at least only doing the sports that you really like. And then maybe, you know, skip the traveling team and just, just do the local stuff every once in a while. This may not be a real connection, but it does seem like the, now the social media world we have where if somebody says something you don't like, you want to get them fired or somehow tell their boss or it comes from an environment where we're so used to telling the teacher because we don't know how to resolve disputes between people anymore. Yeah, we're, we're definitely in a world of immediate consequences. And I'm aware of that every single day I when you I go are. on the internet, that, that I'm playing with fire, that it would only take one tweet to end my career. And there's just no forgiveness out there. I think it's pretty commendable that I've walked the tightrope for that <laughs> long trying to tell, tell jokes at such an age without being destroyed. But yeah, it's it, everything is just really touching. You have to be really cognizant of it. And I'm not here to change the world and say we can't do things anymore. I'm, I'm just trying to survive in that world and saying in that world, maybe it is possible to do do less. But yeah, with social media and everything, I think parenting is different just because there's a record of it. I mean, the only thing you remember from when your parents are raising you are your own personal recollections of this or that. But now, you know, you put things on the internet, on Facebook, on Instagram, it's there forever. So it's that much easier for everybody to see and judge you. Whereas before what you were doing, whether it was good or whether it was bad, more or less went unseen. Any advice for up and coming authors who want to walk the path that you have? 
I think you need to start, uh, you need to write, first of all. You're not going to get anywhere without writing. I think there's probably a thousand writers with a book in their head for every one writer that puts something down on paper. But what you write doesn't have to necessarily be a book when you write every day. I mean, for years, I wasn't writing books. I was writing blog entries. Then I was writing tweets, writing web comics. I mean, those are all writing. Anything that you put down in a way that other people can consume, that's, that's writing. That counts. Even if it's just, you know, doing a scripted video, anything like that, but you have to be putting content out there in a way that you can get feedback so you can narrow it down and so you can get better and you can build an audience. That's really the key. If you're going out there without that, I mean, it's going to be hard because one, you don't, you don't have that support base to begin with to take to publishers. And two, you just, you had, your style hasn't been refined. I mean, I shudder to think of what my writing would be like if I was still like what I was like in 2012 writing jokes rather than what I was like in 2016 when I finally went viral. And in between there, I had four years of feedback to get me to that point. So you have to get somewhere where somebody is helping you get better. And that doesn't mean you listen to every criticism out there. I mean, there's some criticism you just have to ignore, but you need to figure out either what the bulk of your audience wants or what one or two really insightful people want, whose judgment you can trust and go with that. And if you are going with one or two people whose judgment you trust, make sure they themselves have succeeded. I mean, there are so many blogs and guides and books out there by people who themselves have not necessarily succeeded in the publishing world. So make sure you're taking, you're taking advice from somebody who's actually making a living at this rather than somebody who's also just trying to climb the ladder like you are. It is very interesting what you said about, you know, your earlier experiences with Twitter or experiences to this day with Twitter. Whereas, you know, I think of, you know, I follow a lot of stand-up comics who got their chops and built their acts by going little show to little show, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Well, you've replicated that same process, you know, from the comfort of your living room. On an industrial scale. That's right. <laughs> really, That's right. You know, I, I, I put out a joke and with a million followers and any given thing, it's going to even a small one's going to be seen by 80 or 90,000 people at least. And you figure that's enough people to fill a stadium. It's just a whole different level of feedback. I will say one thing. It's interesting. Stand up comedy and written comedy are two completely different mediums. And I think there are a lot of stand up comedians who are absolutely hilarious in person who can do way better than I ever could on a stage because so much of their humor is their body language, their presence their pauses, their delivery, all of those things. When you get on Twitter, though, it's the great equalizer. You strip all of that away, and all you have is your words, which is why it translates so well to books, because that's what you're doing. And I think there are a lot of stand-up comedians out there who, who struggle on Twitter, who don't have the following they should, despite being hilarious, uh, because they uh, because they, they don't have those other tools at their disposal. Uh, you know, the, the presence and the delivery and all of that, whereas I never had presence or delivery and anything. So <laughs> when I went on Twitter, it showed the one thing I had, which was my words. So it fit perfectly for me. So now is that an obstacle when you think about YouTube? You know what? I actually found out I can rant pretty well. I Sitting in front of a camera screen and telling a story is not that different than writing a book. You know, when I'm sitting there with my phone dictating into it, it is exactly the same thing when I'm making a video. What's helped me with that, I, I, it hasn't been just me on my own. It was those podcasts. Again, the podcasts on their own, I wasn't making any money off of them, but that was another chance to test out my skill set, to banter back and forth with somebody else. And I got comfortable with it. And I figured out that if I just had confidence and I paused where I needed to pause, 
cause, I could tell a pretty good story. Because of that, for both of my first two books, I was hired to record my own audiobooks. Uh, and because of that, I've gotten different ad deals. So that's another example of just because something's not paying you money now doesn't mean you shouldn't stick with it because it can it can give you skills you need for other things. So that that work with web comics, they didn't make money on their own, but they gave me skills I needed to, to make money. And then it worked with the podcast. I didn't make money off of those, but it gave me the the ability to do interviews like this or to sit in front of a, you know, a YouTube or, or do anything else like that. It, it's really paid off in that way. Any hints about your next book? The one <laughs> I'm always reluctant to, to, to plug a, a book down the road. People are like, well, I'll just skip this current book and I'll do the next one. But I can I can tell you about it. I guess you're the guy who would give me permission anyway. <laughs> so I can go ahead and talk about it. So I'm going to do a, another survival guide. But this one's going to be a little different. Rather than being an entire book about zombies, it's going to be a survival guide for a whole bunch of different small scenarios. You know, what do you do? And it's a parenting guide. So what do you do? If your kid gets abducted by aliens, what do you do if you're sitting in your living room and an ostrich attacks? What do you do if there are killer robots and you're, you're trying to take care of your kid? Just all these other very common parenting scenarios. I think we all worry about a little bit. So <laughs> I'm going to take these these rather ridiculous situations. And it's actually, it's been the most fun I've ever had writing a book because when I dictated the whole first draft, just walking through the woods, but two going through it, it's just, it's just such quick hits of humor of here's a crazy, absurd scenario. Go. It's almost like improv comedy. So it's, it's been a, it's been fantastic writing it. And I really hope that translates onto the page. Oh, I can't wait to read it. That sounds great. Well, James, this has been great. Thank you. Now, remind everybody where they can find you in all your various mediums. The most important place to find me is to buy that book, Bare Minimum Parenting, The Ultimate Guide to Not Quite Ruining Your Child. And that's going to be on all major online retailers and bookstores. It comes out November 6th. Then uh, as far as social media, uh, I'm best known for Exploding Unicorn, uh, spelled without the E, and that's on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I've got the E there, or you can just Google James Breakwell and I'll pop up. On Instagram, I'm James underscore Breakwell. On YouTube, you can search for James Breakwell. And uh, my podcasts are Wrong and Wronger and and uh, 10 Minutes to Save Your Marriage. And those are both a fun time as well. So no matter where you go, if you if you Google James Breakwell, you'll find me. Or if you just go, go to my website, explodingunicorn.com, uh, that's kind of the hub of where everything is. And that's the easiest way to find all my stuff. Wonderful. Well, James, thank you so much for your time. We're thrilled to be your publisher. And you you always deliver fantastic stuff. And can't wait for your, to bring out Bearman and Parenting, which by the time this airs, it would, should be in stores. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Building Books Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it, or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Four Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you. <laughs>